In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the April Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be terrified. Or do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she, who was said to be unable to conceive, is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. This is the word of the Lord. Morning. Um, welcome again to Midtown 12 South. My name is Elliot. I'm the pastor here. Um, we're really glad you're with us uh, on our last uh, Sunday of Advent. Before we uh, have this text uh, dive into us, uh, would you pray with me? Jesus' uh, Advent season is nearly uh, over, and um, not only has it moved so quickly, um, it hasn't delivered yet again on all that we had hoped that it would be. Um, For many of us, it uh, awakens um, our own demons and our own darkness, and um, we're here, though. We're here um, maybe out of obligation, we're here maybe out of duty, Um, but you don't seem to mind that. You uh, draw us into yourself and don't hold our motivations against us. And so this morning as we open up your word and as we sing um, about uh, the the great um, Christmas story, Jesus, uh, would would you be with us? Would you draw us to yourself? Would you reveal yourself to us? Uh, that we might rest in this Advent season. We pray now for the one who you've called to teach your word this morning, that you forgive him his sins, for they are many. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I just prayed, we are closing out our Advent season in the church. Um, And if you're visiting with us, let me just give you a brief uh, bit of context for not only um, this season, but our sermon series and what we've been doing in this Advent Season. Advent is a season historically in the church where the church pauses in their calendar and looks backwards. We, we pause and we look back at the story of Jesus' coming to earth. But Advent has become synonymous with Christmas, but Advent is not a Christian word. It's become one, but the term Advent, all that Advent means is the arrival, the appearing, the, the, the coming of someone very important, the arrival of, of a significant person. And so in the ancient world, there were advents all the time. Emperors and kings and nobles would advent among people in their towns and villages in their kingdom. And so word would spread that an advent was coming, an arrival was coming of someone very important. And so 
kind of buried in the meaning of an advent comes with it this, on the other side of the advent is this expectation and this waiting and this, oh, the emperor is going to advent among us. He's going to arrive and appear before us. And so there's this preparation and there's this hoping and then there's this doubting. Is he actually going to do it? Is he actually going to arrive and advent among us? And so advent does mean this very important arrival, but you can imagine on the other side of that, there's this wondering and waiting and hoping and, and longing and, and then doubting that comes with it. That's very much what it means to be an Advent people. And so the Old Testament people of God were waiting. They were an Advent people waiting on the Advent of their Messiah. For thousands of years, the people of God in the Old Testament are waiting and longing and wondering and doubting, is our Messiah going to come in Advent among us? And then he did. The greatest Advent in human history took place. And so part of what we're doing is we, we pause in this Christmas season to look back at the first advent of Jesus. But we're borrowing from that whole storyline. We're not just rehearsing the story to be sentimental. We're rehearsing the story of the coming of Jesus because now as the people of God after the first advent, we've been promised a second advent. And it sounds crazy in the modern world, but this is what we actually believe, that the, that the Jesus who was born in a manger one day will return his kingdom that he began in a manger, that kingdom is going to come with full consummation one day and everything's going to be restored and all of our sadness will come untrue and all will be made right and all will be made new. We're waiting on that advent. We're waiting on the second advent of Jesus. So the church now lives between the advents. And so in this season, as a people between the advents, just like the Old Testament people of God, we're waiting, we're longing, we're hoping, we're doubting, we're wondering when is it going to happen? Is it ever going to happen? Is he a giant liar? And so here's what happens. We rehearse the first Advent story to give us some strength now. And it's almost as if to feed our souls and to nourish our longing to say, he Advented once, surely he will Advent again. And so in this time between the Advents, we rehearse this story not just to light Christmas trees and not just to sing carols. We rehearse this story to give us hope as we wait and the way that Midtown is rehearsing the first Advent story this year is we're, we're starting on the first page of the story of the first Advent, Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 begins the story of the first Advent, not with a story, but with a list of names. It's known as the genealogy of Jesus. It's Jesus' family tree. It's Jesus' lineage. It's Jesus' 23andMe, we've said. It's Jesus' finding out where he came from. And so we study that not because it, it, it's, um, it's meant to um, bore us, just read a bunch of names, but here's what happens inside the genealogy of Jesus on, Matthew, on Matthew's first page in the story of the first advent. Buried in the genealogy of Jesus is something radically obscure. There's the names of five women. And in a patriarchal first century society, women didn't appear in genealogies. Women didn't appear in lineages. And so the first question is, wait, wait, why are there women in the genealogy of the Messiah? That doesn't make any sense. But then when you study the stories of these five women, then you begin to not just ask, why are there women? Why are there these women? Why are these women in the genealogy of the Messiah? Why are these women included in the family tree of Jesus? These women all had broken stories. These women all had shattered lives. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and now Mary. 
All these women, by their stories, would have become outsiders from their community. All these women, by their stories, would have been excluded from the community. And now Jesus, who's bringing with him a new kingdom, by his very genealogy, is saying, I came to bring a new kingdom that welcomes in the outsider. I came to bring a kingdom that welcomes those that have been excluded. In my own family tree is screaming the story of grace. That no matter what your family tree looks like, no matter what your family history is, no matter what your own history is, none of that can be used as proof for you to believe that Jesus wouldn't welcome you in and write you into his story. The story of grace is bursting out of this genealogy. And so we've looked at the stories of these women in the Old Testament. We looked at Tamar and Rahab and Ruth, and I would encourage you if you miss those sermons, um, you don't have to go listen to the sermons, just go read the stories in the Old Testament Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. We're skipping Bathsheba, and that we didn't want to do that, um, but we only had four weeks of Advent, and there's five women. And so we, we did study Bathsheba a year and a half or so ago when we were studying the life of David uh, in 2 Samuel. So we, we are now skipping ahead of Bathsheba, skipping ahead to Mary, the mother of Jesus, which is what was just read for us. And this story of this final woman in the genealogy, the mother of Jesus, is a familiar story to many of us. But no matter how familiar it is, the Bible always invites the reader, no matter how many times you've heard it, it always invites us to slow ourselves down, to plummet to new depths. It always changes our pace when we come to it. That to read it with familiarity would be to do a disservice to us and the story. That there's something that happens in the story with Mary that is remarkable, And outside of the angelic visit that that she does encounter an angel, Gabriel, which is unbelievable, and outside of the story being the grounds for what is known as the virgin conception or the virgin birth, those are two amazing things that get talked about in this passage. She's visited by Gabriel and she's told about how this is going to happen. But something more unbelievable happens in this passage. Something more miraculous happens than even an angel visit or the story of the virgin conception. There's a transformation that goes on in these 12 verses. There's a radical transformation of Mary that happens. If we were to read it three or four times, the question would begin to jump off the page. How does Mary herself go from verse 29 to verse 38? Because in in just those nine verses, there's an amazing transformation. Let me read for you this again. We throw back up uh, verse 29. Can you find that, Sam? Oh, Sam, we got a new slides guy. He's a high schooler, so this might not go well. Hey, I'm kidding. (laughs) Verse, verse 29. Verse 29 says this, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Okay, so she's greatly troubled, and now let's go to verse 38. This is, this is at the very end. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. So here's the transformation. Verse 29 to verse uh, 38. How does Mary go from being greatly troubled to then enacting and and displaying beautiful submission. Let it be to me, as you have said. How does she go from greatly troubled to let it be? Well, first, let's, let's study why is she greatly troubled? That phrase, greatly troubled, is a very unique one in the New Testament. Actually, it's the only time that word is used in the entire New Testament. The word troubled is used many times. Many New Testament characters, we're told, are troubled at the circumstances of their life. Greatly troubled, meaning here's how the Greek uh, construct of that word goes. It's a superlative adverb attached to the word troubled. 
She is greatly troubled. She's like superlatively troubled. That word only appears in this passage. Mary isn't just troubled, she is greatly troubled. In fact, based on the grammar and the word usage, it could be said here that in the entire New Testament, no human was more troubled than Mary was at this moment. She's the most troubled character in the New Testament at this moment. So why is she this troubled? Well, let's give a little bit of context to the story of Mary. Let's see what's going on here, and we're just going to display a few things, and you tell me if you think she has every right to be greatly troubled with what's going on. At this time, Mary was no more than 15 years old, but most scholars believe she was 13 years old. Any 13-year-olds in the house? Let's just imagine a 13-year-old experiencing what Mary is experiencing. She's been betrothed, which is, is kind of a, a, an engagement on steroids. It's not married yet, but it's more than engagement. In fact, once you've been betrothed to be married, you needed a divorce to end it. So she's betrothed. She's as close to being married as she could possibly get. And now she's visited by an angel, Gabriel, one of two angels named in Scripture. That means he's very important. And she's told by the angel Gabriel that she will be with child, and not just any child, but this child will be the son of the Most High. So here's the first thing that Mary knows. She is now going to be walking back into a world of public shame. Because here's the perception that everyone will have of Mary when she starts to show her baby bump. Obviously, Mary, you've been sleeping around. Does Joseph know? Obviously, Mary, this is, this is not how it's supposed to go. You're pregnant and not married yet, which means excluded, which means ostracized, which means Joseph could have you stoned to death, Mary, based on the Jewish law. In fact, Joseph, because he's an honorable man, we're told in Matthew, in the Christmas story in Matthew, that Joseph, because he was so honorable, was going to divorce her quietly and not bring more public shame on her. He wasn't going to do anything to her that he had the legal rights to do. Mary knows that. Mary knows that, wait, wait, I'm going I'm to start showing, but my wedding isn't for another year. This, this is, everyone's going to do the math. I'm going to start being pregnant. You're telling me I'm going to be with child, and this isn't supposed to happen yet. She assumes, most likely, she's going to be a single mother, and she knows she will be under the public shame of her entire community as the girl who claims to be a virgin still, but is obviously a liar. And then, let's complicate this story for Mary just a little bit more. Mary's told that she will become pregnant, and then she asks this very simple, very understandable question, how, how's this going to happen? The, the literal Greek there is, since I haven't been with a man, how, teach me, angel, some biology, please. How is this going to happen since I haven't been with a man? And this is how Gabriel answers her. Well, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you, and the, the Most High will overshadow you. Oh, that clears up everything. That's happened so many times, I fully understand what you're talking about, Gabriel. Thank you for putting all that in a nice, neat box that I can fully understand. Gabriel's answer doesn't help her. As if she could understand that, and then to think, that's the answer you want me to give to everybody? Like, when dad asks at the dinner table, hey, Mary, how did this happen? Oh, dad, don't worry about it. The Holy Spirit did this to me. The who? We don't even know that character of the Trinity yet at this point in the Bible. And so now she's given this answer to try to explain to everybody else something that will not explain it for herself or for anybody else. Gabriel's answer makes things perhaps more confusing. It started to, to sit with me a little bit this week, an experience that I know, experience that I think we all can relate to that Mary would have felt in the superlative sense, how misunderstood do you think Mary would have been for all of her days? 
Not just after, not just up until the birth, and then, and then as soon as she has the baby, no one is going, oh, now it all makes sense now. They're still talking. And so her whole life, she's the crazy lady who says, no, no, the Holy Spirit did this to me. This, this is what happened to me. And they're going, yeah, yeah, we, we just don't believe you. And so the, the idea of being misunderstood is one of the most painful, lonely, isolating experiences a human can have. And Mary's just finding out right now, you're going to be misunderstood your entire life. No one's going to get you. No one can relate to you. No one's going to be able to sympathize or empathize with her. No one has this story. And the pain of being misunderstood for all of her days. And not just will she be misunderstood. Think about this road ahead. We're going to play out Mary's story for, for the next several years. Think about this now. The road ahead for Mary is going to be awful. In fact, if we were to turn the page from Luke chapter 1 and go to Luke chapter 2... A very interesting thing happens in Luke chapter 2. Mary and Joseph go to the temple in Jerusalem. This was Jewish custom to dedicate and to consecrate your firstborn child. And so they go to the temple. He's eight days old, baby Jesus is. And they're holding this newborn. And this old creepy man, maybe, named Simeon, comes up to them. And Simeon starts worshiping this eight-day-old. And he says, the Lord told me that I would not die before I met the Messiah. Now I can die in peace. This is it. This is the Messiah. And then he starts speaking. And at the end of Simeon's speech, he turns to Mary and he says to Mary, he says, this baby is going to cause the rising and the falling of many sons of Israel. Oh, and by the way, Mary, a sword will pierce your heart also. This baby is going to destroy you, Mary. The life of this child is going to pierce your heart like a sword. <laughs> Thanks, old guy. And so now think about this. Think about the sword that's piercing Mary's heart for the rest of her days. What happens a year and a half later, two years later maybe, when, when the Magi, the wise men, come to visit Mary and Joseph when baby Jesus is a toddler and they have to tell Mary and Joseph, you need to get out of here because something bad is about to happen. An angel comes to visit Joseph in the middle of the night and says, you need to leave Bethlehem. You need to leave the region. Why? Because Herod is about to commit genocide. And so they've got to flee to Egypt with the gold that they've gotten from the wise men to live off of. They flee to Egypt. They leave all of their family and all of, all of their familiar life behind knowing that a genocide is happening behind them because of this baby. How do you think Mary's dealing with that? All of my friends and family and community are having their babies slaughtered because of my baby. And now I've got to be in Egypt for the, the, the adolescent ages knowing nobody. And then they get back to Israel, and they're in Jerusalem for Passover, and they head home after Passover with their family entourage from Passover. They get two days back, uh, they get two days out of Jerusalem, heading back home to Galilee, and they realize, oh, teenage Jesus is not with us. And so they start looking for him everywhere. There's no cell phones, there's no way to get a hold of him, they have no idea where, she has no idea where her 12-year-old is. So they go running around Jerusalem looking for him, and they find Jesus in the temple teaching. And Mary comes up to her son and goes, son, what are you doing? Why don't you tell? We've been looking all over for you. And Jesus goes, yeah, I don't really care about that. I'm here to do my father's work. Like, my priorities are not your priorities, mom. Like, most 12-year-olds would have been disciplined for that answer. And Mary's going, oh, well, I guess my, I guess my son, whom I've loved and protected and served all these years, maybe is changing allegiances. 
And then, several years later, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is teaching at this house, and the crowds are piling in, and some of his disciples come up to him on a teaching break, I guess, and they go, hey, your mother and your brothers are outside, and they'd love to see you. They haven't seen you in a long time. They'd love to see you. And he goes, who is my mom and brothers? He goes, no, 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 they're not my mom and brothers. You guys are. This is my family. Mary hears these words, who's my mom? No, 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 that's, it's, not, it's not what you think it is. In fact, it's remarkable how rarely the mother of Jesus in Scripture is even referred to as Mary. She's not even named. This is the only time in these opening chapters of Luke and in Matthew where Mary gets named. For the rest of Jesus' life, she's just another woman. And then, gosh, play out the end of this, of this life. Play out the end of Jesus' life. Mary is one of the few people at the foot of the cross while her son is hanging naked from a crossbeam, suffocating to death. She's there with John, the beloved disciple, and she doesn't know how this story ends. She's watching her son who she's raised. She's watching her son who she's adored. She's watching her son with all this chaos from her life from birth until death and going, what in the world is my life? She's a widow at this point, most scholars think, because Joseph isn't there and Jesus tells John, the disciple, to take care of her. She's a widow watching her firstborn son be crucified. She doesn't know a resurrection is coming. She has no idea. A sword will pierce your heart too, Mary. That's what Simeon promises her. This is not going to be easy. Your whole life, Mary, is going to be chaos. And all of that circles us back to this angelic interaction with Gabriel. The point is, Gabriel is not bringing Mary news that she is thrilled to hear. The Lord is disrupting this girl's life. And so take all of that, all of the understandable anxiety, all the understandable confusion and the questions and the loneliness and the misunderstoodness and the pain and the sword piercing and the heartache and the discontentment and all of the putting to death all of her dreams. This was not the life that she thought she was going to have. And so you can begin to get a little bit of a picture why the New Testament author Luke would say, no one in all of the New Testament was as troubled as Mary. And then read with me again verse 38, the end of this interaction with Gabriel. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Translation, whatever you want to happen to me, let it be. I am willing and I am content for this storyline to play out how you want it to, Lord. A sword is going to pierce my heart and I am signing up for a life of pain, but let it be to me according to your word. How does Mary get there from greatly troubled nine verses earlier? How does Mary go from greatly troubled to beautiful submission? How does Mary open up her fist and say, let it be, your, your will, not mine? And as we're studying this, here's the bigger question. Not just will we look at how could Mary get there, how could we get there? Because I know with the people in this room and the season that we're in and the storylines that I know about that many in this room, if not all in this room, are also feeling greatly troubled about something. It's Christmas for crying out loud. That means you have to be around family for an extended period of time. That means that all of the unresolved tension, that means all of the conversations that you wish had happened, that means all of the being misunderstood, that means all of the family tension that exists, you're stepping into that. It's Christmas. 
That means you have to deal with the closing of another calendar year, and all of us subconsciously are forced to deal with the fact that I have to look at my life since the last Christmas, I have to look at my life since the last time a year ended, and realize I'm still unhappy, I'm still discontent, and my life isn't going the way that I wanted it to go. It's Christmas. That means you're supposed to be full of cheer, but you're not. And so we begin to just load ourselves with buckets of shame Greatly troubled, yes. And so how could we in this room, as we're three days away from Christmas, be transformed like Mary from greatly troubled to let it be to me according to your word? However you want my life to go, my life is in your hands and I'm submitting my idea of how my life is supposed to go and feel at this point, and I'm submitting it to you, Lord. If Mary could get there, do you think we could too? Well, two things transform Mary in this little section, in these nine verses. Two very powerful things happen to Mary that transform her. Her protection and her perplexity. Her protection and her perplexity. So first, her protection. Verse 28 and verse 35 both speak to this. I'll read them for you. Verse 28, uh, Gabriel speaking, he says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And then verse 35, and the Holy Spirit will come upon you and will overshadow you. The Lord is with you and the Lord will overshadow you. Now, certainly Gabriel is talking about partially how the immaculate conception, how, how the, the virginal conception is going to take place, the mystery of that. But more than that, he's also talking about the rest of Mary's life. The Lord is with you and the Lord will overshadow you. That word overshadow you, I did a deep word study dive on that this week. That, this word means literally to shade, to cast a shadow, or to cover. In fact, if you were to do a Bible word study, a Bible word search on that word, you would find that it's the same Hebrew word. It's the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word that's found in the book of Psalms many times, but in Psalm 91, listen to what David is crying out. To the Lord. The Lord will cover you with his feathers. That's it. He will cover you with his feathers. Same word. And under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield. He will cover you with his feathers. And under his wings you will find refuge. That's what Mary has promised by Gabriel. The Lord is going to be your refuge. He is going to shadow you, overshadow you. He is going to be your shield and he will be with you. Mary, a sword is going to pierce your heart and you don't know this yet, but one day this little baby who you're going to carry and you're going to nurse and you're going to rock to sleep and you're going to clean up after and you're going you're to be a total mom to, one day that baby will hang naked from crossbeams. And from the genocide that's going to happen in a couple years to the separation of mother and son to the questions and the public shame and the being misunderstood all of your days, at each step of your heart-piercing journey, the Lord is saying to her at the very beginning of it, I'm going to be with you and I'm going to overshadow you and I will be your refuge and I will be your shield and you will not be alone. I will protect you. And in so doing, the Lord gives her all that she needs here. And this, this, this should challenge all of us at the idea that when hardship, when strife, when greatly troubledness hits, 
most of us go to a place of, well, just tell me how it's all going to work out. Just tell me so I can understand and I can plot out the steps and I can know, okay, so it's troubling now. I know that it'll be okay though because you're going to tell me the turn right and the turn left and I'll know how all this is going to be reconciled. But Mary doesn't get any of that. Mary doesn't need the conclusion of all things. She doesn't need the details of each step. Mary needs to know that in the dark night of her soul, she will be protected from the taunts. Mary needs to know that she will have a place to hide. And here's what Gabriel gives her at the beginning of her greatly troubledness. The Lord's going to be with you. And the Lord will overshadow you. God will be your refuge while your heart is being cut into Mary. And so we would love to ask this question, okay, so what does that look like? How is, how is he going to protect her and how is he going to overshadow you? And what, what does it mean about all the, all the nights where I don't want to do this anymore? And what does this mean about the pain? Because I want it to mean that if you're going to be my refuge and you're going to cover me with, with your feathers and you're going to overshadow me, I want it to mean that there's no pain in my story. Can't you guarantee me that, Gabriel, please? But here's what God gives her. In the midst of her heart being pierced, the Lord says, I will be your refuge. I will envelop you in such a way that you are overshadowed by my light. I will be with you and I will defend you. And so here's, here's, here's what begins to transform Mary. Is that her protection from ultimate darkness, meaning the dark night of the soul, meaning what our greatly troubledness begins to tell us about ourselves and begins to tell us about our God, because the pain of life is usually not where the worst things happen. The pain of life is usually what is used to tell us stories about ourselves and to tell us stories about God. And so Mary is told here, you're going to have a lot of pain. It's going to be very hard. But in the dark night of the soul, when all of those taunts are coming, when all the arrows are being hurled at you, I'm going to be your shield. I'm going to overshadow you. I will be with you, Mary. She will not be abandoned. She will be protected. And he guarantees her that while her demons are screaming at her, he will protect her and he will defend her and he will overshadow her. Her protection frees her. Get this. Her protection from the Most High protects her from having to understand everything. She doesn't get to let it be to me, Lord, as you have said, by understanding how it's all going to play out. That's not what liberates her. What, li what begins to liberate Mary is the fact that she doesn't have to demand the answers and the explanations She's promised she won't be alone and the Lord will be her refuge and she begins to be transformed. Is there, that sounds insane to me. Like when the greatly troubledness happens and I'm up in the middle of the night and I'm thinking about something and then rethinking about something and then overthinking about something and the taunts are coming and I begin to tell myself stuff about myself and then I begin to say things about the Lord and about my life and about my story. That place is where I need to know, is anyone gonna protect me here? Is anyone going to be my shield and my refuge here? And I don't have to understand how all of these storylines play out. You're not giving me that. What you are giving me, Lord, is actually better than that. That you will be my shield and you will envelop me in your wings. It's the first part of Mary's transformation. It's the first part of ours, too. When we lay down our demand to understand and know everything. When we lay down our demand to have explanations given to us. 
and we rest in the shadow of his wing and we rest with the Lord as our refuge, we begin to be transformed. That's the first part. Second part is this. Her perplexity. I don't know if I've ever used that word in a sermon. You're welcome. And here's what I mean by that. It may sound odd. What I mean by perplexity is this. A sense of awe and wonder. She's perplexed in the best way. There's a ministry of healing that happens when we are perplexed, when we stand in awe and we stand in wonder. And here's her perplexity. Here's what happens to her. We see it happen if we were to continue to read on. We'll talk about it in a minute when we see her Magnificat, her song. But here's her perplexity. The Son of the Most High, the descendant of David, the king who's coming to establish a kingdom that will never end, the Messiah who has come to save her, is also the baby in her womb. Luke, in this little section, gives five descriptions about the baby, about the Messiah. Verse 32, he says, He will be great. He will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Five descriptions, and I wish we had time to unpack each description in two verses But let me just tell you the essence of what was just said about the Messiah that's coming into the world. This is the sovereign king of the universe. This is the long-awaited Messiah who has nothing short of 10,000 years of promises waiting on him. And the angel Gabriel says, yeah, and he's going to own all of them. I try to think of like, man, what do we do with like, is there any modern equivalent of someone who has all these expectations and can step into them and handle them and actually own them and, and, and display them? It's a really bad example. But anybody watching LeBron James' son play basketball these days? No? Nobody? He's going to ESPN a bunch. He's got more pressure on him to be a superstar than anybody in the history of the world other than me. And he's, I'm kidding, and he's handling it wonderfully. He's stepping into it. I'm going, man, the pressure that is on this one little teenage boy, and he's stepping into that with with class and and playing really well and living up to the hype and all that kind of stuff. Times that by like a trillion, (laughs) that Jesus has 10,000 years of expectations riding on him. The promise, let me just give you two of them. The coming Messiah is promised to be the one who will end all of the sadness and all of the darkness. End it. Light load to carry for a Messiah. Jesus is also promised to be the one who will come and will bless the whole world and will redeem it and will make all things new. He's promised to be the one who will crush the serpent's head. He's promised to be the one who will mend the world. He's promised to be the one who will start ruling and will never stop ruling for all eternity. This is the infinite creator, redeemer God we're talking about. Mary's given those descriptions. That's what she would have heard in those five, five descriptions about this child. That Jesus is going to be the son of God. He will be a king that will never leave his throne. He will make every ruler of every country in all of history like a footstool under his feet. And he will be a king with a kingdom that will never end. That Messiah in these five descriptions is meant to burst off the page and go, this Messiah is going to be full of power. And power, there's nothing scarier than an, an encounter with power if you don't know if that power is for you or against you. And Mary hears the announcement of this powerful Messiah, and then she's told, and it's going to be a baby in your womb. Meaning the Messiah 
became breakable. The sovereign Lord of hosts became fragile as a baby. Have you ever held a baby? That God became someone we could hurt. The mission of the king in Mary's womb was to establish a kingdom that would never end. And he came to die so that you and I could be a part of that kingdom. And that's the baby in Mary's womb. And this, this we don't get to experience this. We, we see this so rarely. And even when we do, it's on a finite level. This collision of, of power and humility. This collision of this king who has also come to serve you. This collision of... Uh, of, of total authority on autonomy married with humility. Like, we don't see that. Strength and compassion, king and baby. Why in the world did the Messiah come that way? And biblically speaking, the answer is very clear. He came to get us back. See, what's most important in the New Testament telling of the Advent story is not the, the miracle that happened certainly was virgin conception. That's a miracle. That's not what Mary's in awe of. She's not going, oh my gosh, I'm totally at peace now because this magic thing's gonna happen in my womb. She can't believe, and the Magnificat is very clear about this in the, in the very next section when, when she starts singing her infamous song. Mary simply cannot believe that this baby has come to save her. She's perplexed that the Messiah has come helpless as a baby. And Mary is lost in awe and wonder. Is she troubled? Yes. But is she also humbled that of all women, she gets to carry the life of the Messiah in her womb? The promises of thousands of years are now dwelling in my very body, she says in her Magnificat. My lifeblood is going to be feeding the one who's going to save me. My nutrients are nourishing the body of the Savior of the world. I am tending to the one who came to tend and rescue me. Like that, that comes out in her song. Mary's perplexity is her liberation. When she stands in awe and wonder of the storyline that's happening, this powerful Messiah came to be fragile as a baby for me. And now I get to step into that story. She's not asking the question of, well, tell me how it's all going to work out now. All she is is she just stands in wonder. She stands in awe. She stands in perplexity. And she begins worshiping. And guess what that does to her clenched, troubled fist? She goes like this. Okay. I don't have to understand it all. I don't have to know it all. I don't have to be able to articulate exactly how this is going to go down. Because perplexity drives us to a sense of wonder. And wonder liberates our hearts, which ends up liberating our minds. The path to your heart is not through your head. And Mary knows that. She's got questions up here, but she lays down all of her questions at the end of the story because her heart has been captured. As long as the history and mystery of salvation remain a paradox to us, we will be free. Being caught in the awe and wonder and perplexity of Christmas actually has the power to transform you from being greatly troubled to let it be. We see it happen. Like Christmas blows Mary's mind and that's the, that's the ending of the transformation for her. I don't have to know it all. I just can't believe it's happening. 
And wonder begins to happen to you and me when we stop demanding to understand. It also happens when we stop demanding that our life be free of pain and chaos. Wonder happens when we see the light entering the chaos and becoming our refuge. That's our hope. And if we're going to stand in awe and wonder, here's, here's the hardest part about all of it. Hardest part for me. If we're going to stand in awe and wonder of, of this story, if we're going to be perplexed like Mary and be transformed like Mary, we have to be still. We have to be still to see the wonder. It's what we're told about Mary in many other places. She treasured up all these things in her heart. She pondered them all in her heart. She's going, I just, this, this, is, this is too good to not be true. Like, I can't believe this is happening to me. She's treasuring it up. She's being still with it. So we're going to close this morning before we, we sing. One of the best ways for me, and I, I don't practice this as often as I'd like, one of the best ways for me to begin to be still is to read poetry. And so I came across a poem this week that we're going to read, um, and the band is going to come back in, and as soon as the poem is done, um, we'll begin singing together. Um, I don't want you to read this poem with me. We're going to throw it up on the screen in just a second. You can hold off, Sam. Um, I just want to read this to you, and it captures this sense. It captures this sense of Mary's wonder. I'm trying to get the band to come back in so that they can get in place. Joshua, Joshua Breaker 1-9. Oh, hi. Oh, oh, you're waiting for me to start. Sorry. Josh left staff, so we're out of sync. Sorry. <laughs> Just some public shame for you there, Josh. Let me read for you Mary's song. You can throw it up there now, Sam. Blue homespun in the bend of my breast. Keep warm this small, hot, naked star. Fall into my arms. Rest, you have, who have had so far to come. Now nearness satisfies the body of God sweetly. Quiet he lies, whose vigor hurled a universe. He sleeps, whose eyelids have not closed before. His breath... So slight it seems no breath at all once ruffled the dark deeps to sprout a world. Charmed by doves' voices, the whisper of straw, he dreams, hearing no music from his other spheres. Breath, mouth, ears, eyes, he is curtailed, who overflowed all skies, all years. Older than eternity, now he is new. Now native to earth as I am, nailed to my poor planet, Caught that I might be free. Blinded my womb to know my darkness ended. Brought to this birth for me to be newborn. And for him to see me mended, I must see him torn. <laughs>